Good morning. Is it nice to have the choir back? Oh, that was really, that was gorgeous. And that was Josh on, uh, on the saxophone. Excellent. Joanne on the piano. We have been in this series. This is the third week, final week of our series, The Church You've Always Wanted. And asking the question, um, actually there's a, a, a book that I've mentioned by Francis Chan, Letters to the Church, and he starts the book out that if you were stranded on an island and knew nothing and knew no one, and you knew nothing about the church and yet you just had the Bible, what from reading the Bible alone not from any other experience, but from reading the Bible alone, what would be your picture of the church? And how close of reading the scripture and seeing the church does that match your present church? And oftentimes, I would say, we would be, find our present church lacking. I don't mind you thinking that in your head. All right, you're like, oh gosh, I hope Pastor Eric doesn't think. No, I've thought that. Uh, there, there's, a, there's a lacking in the church. And I said, what if, what if it was a, a spirit-designed church? What if we asked the Lord, what do you want in the church? And, and we've talked about a few areas of holy discontent and really have been talking about an invitation for you to join us in building a, a spirit-designed church of, of reforming, of reshaping, of going after saying, Jesus, what do you want this church to be like? And one of the areas we talked about a couple of weeks ago uh, uh, of holy discontent is that sometimes I personally really struggle with the lack of true personal transformation. That, that I long to see, I long to experience myself a, a greater sense of transformation, not just from outward behavior, not just from light things, but an in, inside out transformation. What would it be if we said, yes, as a church, as a community of faith, we are going to go after this deep spiritual formation. As the Apostle Paul says, as we saw two weeks ago, that, that part of the goal of the Christian faith is that Christ Jesus would be formed in you. What would it look like if more and more as a community of faith, we're going after that, that Christ would be deeply formed, and we'd see lives transformed in that way. Last week, we talked about another holy discontent, and we, we, we wrestled through some shallow relationships, that oftentimes our relationships that we have, whether in the body or outside of the body, that those relationships are so fragile, that are so shallow, that they really can't take the weight of any kind of pressure or pain or difficulty. And so often in the church, it's just like out the ch outside the church, we, we have some weight pl placed on our relationships and they break. What would it look like if we said together, we're going to go after sacred community? 
We're going to go after sacred friendships. We're going to go after a time that even when we hurt one another, we don't cut bait and, and run. Even in those moments that we're struggling, we actually practice the one another's of scripture where we're, we're caring for one another, forgiving one another, giving grace to one another, speaking truth in love to one another, bearing one another's burdens. What would it look like if we were serious about that and said, yes, God, we want relationships that can bear the weight of the pressures of our world. This week, we're talking about the final piece of the vision, the direction, this seven-year vision that inviting you into not just in-depth spiritual formation, not just sacred community, but there's a, there's a call in the church that includes a, a vibrant, a compelling, and a compassionate witness of Jesus Christ to this broken world. And so often that, that churches and people get off the mission, that we become more about maintenance rather than mission, that, that we become more of a country club rather than a mission outpost that is happening in the church. After uh, graduation from college, I served two different agencies. Um, one is uh, InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. InterVarsity is a parachurch organization that that really cares for um, the, the faith of college students. So I, had, I was kind of like a, a, a missionary to, to um, college campuses in Illinois. And um, they, had, they, were, they have a neat history. It was actually in the, the 1900s that there was a group of students. It was on Cambridge University. And they started praying for their university. They started praying for their lives. Then they were organized much later, and now it's a pretty broad parachurch agency organization. And this is their mission statement that they have. They said, in response to God's love, grace, and truth, the purpose of InterVarsity is to establish and advance at colleges and universities, witnessing communities of students and faculty who follow Jesus as Savior and Lord, growing in love for God, God's word, God's people of every ethnicity and culture and God's purposes in the world. There is this mission that was born way back in 1877, this, this sense of calling and purpose and mission. And InterVarsity has faced some challenges, but I'm happy to say it's still on mission. It's still going after what God placed in those students way back when in Cambridge University. Now, the other agency that I worked with, I, I uh, got tired of raising my own support, and I uh, moved back and entered into social work, which I thought was going to be my calling, social work and counseling, and, and found a job at a YMCA. It's not a normal YMCA, it was a social service YMCA, so we cared for, um, foster kids, we did some drug and alcohol prevention, and so forth. And I was looking at their mission statement, again in the 1900s, 
was founded by actually one particular George Williams. And it was part of the industrial revolution that was happening in Europe. And you had all these young men coming to the city. And really their options were taverns and brothels. And he said, we got to do something about that. And so, so born out of Bible study and prayer was this mission to unite all young male Christians for the extension and the expansion of God's kingdom in the city. Today, it's the, the 20th century, it grew 21st century. Now, by their own admission, they'd say it's really become more interdenominational, more concerned about promoting morality and good citizenship than a distinctive interpretation of Christianity. The, the YMCA is more focused on inspiring youths and families to exercise and be healthy. Now, I remember working at the YMCA and I had a non-Christian female co-worker. She was a good friend of mine and we were talking and our executive director at the time was trying to talk about how the YMCA carried over each one of the words in its title, Young and Men and Christian Association. And finally, my female coworker said, just give it up. It has nothing to do with it. It's not young anymore. It's not just about men. It's really not Christian. It's not really an association. So it's like, give it up. What's happened with the YMCA is a lot of times there is what folks would call a mission shift. Or you could call it a, a mission drift. There's a book by that title to Christian leaders who are part of a Christian agency, they could see and recognize their agency was drifting from the call that God had placed on the founders. They wrote a book, it's, a, it's pretty compelling. They write this, without careful attention, Without careful attention, faith-based organizations will inevitably drift from their founding mission. I highlight a number of reasons. Sometimes finances, people offer money. If you just kind of shape the mission in this way, sometimes you can gain more money if you just shape it that way. Sometimes in our pluralistic society, they, they say, boy, that, that message is a little too narrow. Would you widen it a bit. You see that in universities and colleges. Some of the, the oldest universities were, were founded for the glory of Christ. And now some of them, it's hard to be a Christian on that college campus, right? Um, you have agencies that were, were founded for the purposes of Christ and, and they've drifted there. I'd have to say that mission drift is also profoundly possible personally with us as individuals. It can happen in big universities. It can happen in individual churches. And it can happen in individual lives. Some of you have heard me say that I believe part of Christianity is, is three conversions. Conversion to Christ, conversion to his church, and conversion to his cause. 
And I would say that all three of those conversions, we can experience mission drift. Even in Christ, right? That's why Jesus says to one of the churches in Revelation, is you, you, you've lost your first love. You're off. Where's your zeal? Where, where's your passion? So often we can drift from any of those. How easy is it to drift from your passion for the church? I feel like I do it weekly, right? So the, there, there's a, a passion, a, a draw that's there. I would say mission of the church evangelism, witness. Some of us have never experienced that conversion. None of us have never realized that Jesus isn't saying, hey, I want you to love me and that's it. He's saying, no, 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 I'm inviting you to this mission, this cause, this conversion. Say, yes, I will go after it. Jesus, I'll, I know you are at work in this world. Praise God, you're not done with this, this world, this broken world. Praise God, you're not done with my neighbors and my coworkers and you're inviting me to join you in this mission. But some of you have had that a conversion, that experience. But some of us, there's a drift of passion, of priority, uh, of commitment to that mission. Before you think I, I throw... Stones from glass houses. It's been a drift in my own life I've been aware of and continue to pray and long to, to return to that place. There's been, there's been segments in my life that there was a passionate witness was leading people to Christ. I'll just confess to you, this is not an excuse. But when you're a pastor over years and you're building relationships with Christians, it's so easy to lose that connection with non-Christians and share in that witness, right? I'm not saying that for justification. I'm saying I don't want it to be that way. And I long for my church to help me become more passionate. I long for you all to experience this conversion, not only to Christ, not only to his church, but to his cause. And I long, if you've experienced that conversion, to come back to Christ. That's what that third piece of this vision is about, that we would be a church that has this empowered witness that is compelling, that's full, full of God's compassionate heart, that we're reaching, we're not just shifting sheep from one church to another and call it good. But we're passionately loving those who do not yet know the life-saving message and relationship with Jesus Christ. How beautiful would it be to be a church that has that distinction? Now we're gonna look at a story to think about this third distinction. And it's uh, a beautiful story, it's from Acts 8. Would you turn with me there? And it's the story of one person, do you know that there's one person that's called an evangelist in the New Testament. 
in all scripture, only one. And I think by looking at his story that we will see um, some compelling elements of his life that were there that we could perhaps rediscover, rediscover from Philip's life, it's Philip, and that would bring us to that place of passionate witness, compelling witness. Philip is, let me give you a little bit of background as we start to read eight. Philip was part of the leaders. He wasn't one of the 12. But when they were looking for leaders um, beyond the apostles within the early church, he was one of them. And um, uh, it says he was full of wisdom and the spirit. So he starts serving. The church was growing rapidly. It was in Jerusalem. It was worshiping really around uh, in the, the temple courts and around the temple in the homes. There was a vibrancy. There was a, there was a, a great move of God that was happening. And then persecution broke out. Stephen He was stoned, not in a Colorado sense, but in an old, ancient way. He was killed for his faith. And then look at what happens. If you start at uh, Acts 8, verse 1, on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul, this is actually the Apostle Paul, but he's not the Apostle Paul yet. He's Saul. He's the one that's at the center of the persecution of the church. Verse 3, but Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. If you were reading scripture for the first time, you might think this might be the end of the church. Only been around for a number of years. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many were paralyzed or lame. The lame were healed. So there was great joy in that Samaritan city. Jump down to verse 11. It's going to talk a little bit about his ministry in Samaria and to Simon. Verse 11 says, They followed, the people followed Philip because he was amazed, uh, he amazed them. Oh, I'm sorry, followed Simon because he amazed them the long time with his sorcery. But when they believed Philip as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God, In the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized in both men and women. Now, so you've got this picture of the church is growing. uh, It's a vibrant witness and it's growing. Persecution comes primarily through Saul and the religious leaders. They scatter, but when they scatter, they don't duck and cover. What do they do? Did you see it in the story? 
They preach the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom. They preach Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And we're actually not going to focus on Philip's ministry in Samaria. Philip does this beautiful work, establishes communities of faith in Samaria, but then the Spirit of God has a different assignment. Philip isn't supposed to hang in Samaria. And this is where we're going to look at with a little bit de detail. Look at verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out and on his way, he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of the Kendek which means queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah, the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to the chariot and stay near it. Now, I always read this scripture, just the visual in my head is that the Ethiopian eunuch is in the chariot and he's going home. He's going back to Ethiopia. The angel said, go to this road. So Philip goes to the road. And then he sees the chariot with the Ethiopian reading the book of Isaiah. And he says, go near the uh, chariot. So what does he do? He starts running, right? He, he's jogging along this chariot. And then what happens? The, then Philip, verse 30, ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading? <laughs> Must have been an awkward moment, right? Uh, hello? Uh, how can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up he must have been tired, maybe a glass of water. <sighs> Catches his breath. Verse 32, this is the passage of scripture that the eunuch was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began with the very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. And then they're going to see some water. The eunuch is going to say, how come I can't be baptized right now? And he goes, let's do it. They baptize him. As the eunuch comes out of the water, poof. Philip goes for a fly. He goes away and on another assignment that Jesus has for him. Uh, just a few observations that I think are, are compelling. One of the first things that sticks out to me of the story of Philip is that this all happened because of persecution. I, I fear that if I would have been in Philip's shoes that I would have not been nearly as courageous. I fear that if, if I had been persecuted because the message I was sharing with neighbors, with coworkers, with people, was that the good news of the kingdom of God and Jesus as Messiah, 
If that was the message that got me in trouble, if that was the reason why Stephen was killed, if that was the reason why people were being dragged off from their homes and jailed, I think I would have been like, hey guys, let's, let's keep it on the down low for just a while. Let, let it blow over and, and kind of get established somewhere. Would, is there anyone that perhaps would be as cowardice as me? I think that'd be a tendency, right? And yet there's this, there's this boldness in Philip in the early church. There's this desire, this where, where the word that I came up with was this priority in their lives. That, that despite what is happening around them, they still knew the priority was not even their safety, which is pretty amazing. Not even their comfort. Not even their, all the things that, that take priority, right? Our, our career, our relationships, our family, all those. But the priority, I'm sure all of those things were important to them. And yet to them, to Philip, there's this priority of the gospel of Jesus Christ and his kingdom. That it is the power of salvation. And even in the midst of persecution, they bring this priority of the gospel. Friends, I think if we are going to rediscover a compelling and compassionate witness of Jesus Christ, we've got to once again make it the gospel a priority in our lives. That we would have this. I, I love this, um, this image that Paul gives later after conversion and he stops persecuting the church and becomes an apostle. He says this to the Corinthian church. I think we have this on the screens. It's 2 Corinthians 4.7. But we have this treasure. Do you know what he's talking about? 40 pieces of gold that he had was the treasure. No. The, the treasure was the gospel message. The treasure was Jesus Christ as your forgiver and shepherd. The treasure was this life-saving, life-changing message that God loves you and has not given up on you and wants to forgive you and restore your life and give you a better life. He says, we have this treasure in jars of clay. You know who the jars of clay is? Look at your neighbor and go, you're the jar of clay. You're the cardboard box. Really modern day, that would be a cardboard box. We have this treasure, the gospel, in these jars of clay, these cardboard boxes to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. Now, there's many applications of that passage of Scripture, but I was always taken that that's how Paul saw himself. He saw him as this fragile container himself, as the fragile container as the most important message on the face of the earth. And he doesn't want to keep that cardboard box taped up with packing tape. He wants, to, he wants to get that knife out and cut it open and share that treasure with people. Doesn't matter if he's being persecuted or beaten. 
but it's that priority of the treasure. I was reading an article by Christianity Today entitled, Evangelism Doesn't Have to Be That Hard. I was like, boy, I need to read that. That's a good... It's really from a, a, a book, an expert, uh, a uh, excerpt from a leader, Jerry Root. And he was writing about an experience he had in the Vienna airport. He was, um, he was delayed and he's in the airport and this young woman comes up and she's got a lanyard, name tag, clipboard. And he's like, oh, it's the... Uh, one of those airport surveys. Have you ever had those airport surveys? How do you handle them? Most of the time, I'm like, hey, I've got to get my, right? He didn't handle it that way. He sees her name tag, and, or he sees her and says, what's your name? She's Allegra. He says, oh, really, Allegra. Are you from Vienna? She says, no, I'm from southern Austria. She says, oh, what brought you to Vienna? She talks about a student, and that led to what she's studying in school. She said 20 minutes had gone by, and she hadn't asked him a question. Yeah. What he had discovered about Allegra is that her mother had abandoned her, her father, and her brother, and moved to Canada with a lover. And the bitterness of her dad was toxic. He learned that her brother was attending a university in Vienna, but they were estranged and had not talked for many years. When he expressed his sadness to Allegra, he said, boy, there seems to be a good deal of estrangement in your family. And she said, you haven't heard the, the worst of it yet. She said, I had a boyfriend who's studying art in Florence. He said, give me six months. Would you wait for me? for six months and he said and I said yes just yesterday he came back and he said he'd met someone better and right in that moment there was this this pain and Dr. Root he wrote this I knew I knew where God was wooing her and I knew the deep felt need where Allegra was likely to hear the gospel and after these minutes had gone by, 20 minutes, he, she had not asked me a single question. And I said to her, I know you have a survey to fill out, but I have been sent to tell you something. And she said, oh, are you checking up on me to see if I'm doing my job? He said, no, 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 nothing like that. Do your survey. So she rushed through the, the survey and then she put the clipboard down. What are you supposed to tell me? He says, knowing that Allegra felt abandoned, betrayed, I said this, Allegra, the God of the universe knows you and loves you. And he would never abandon nor forsake you. I said it again, Allegra, he loves you. Three times he repeated that. He said, sometimes it just takes a while to, to sink into the soul of people. She began to sob and say, but I've done so many bad things in my life. And he went on to share the gospel of forgiveness and grace. It struck me how his priority, even in the airport, was so different than mine. 
Mine is always about getting on time to the airport and then getting a little bit of food so I'm not too hungry, right? It, all about my comfort, right? Yeah, I know none of you think of the, along those lines, but he, he had the, the priority of the gospel. And, and just for reflection, I, I ask this question, what's, what's your priority these days? Is it career? Is it family? All of those things are good things. Does the gospel break into even the top five of your priority? It should. It should. Posture. So important. What's the, the posture that we live in? The second thing I love about that story is, did you notice that... Um, both Philip, he wasn't creating these opportunities. What was he doing? He was following, right? Dr. Root with the story of Allegra, he, he actually wasn't creating. He had the right posture and priority that was coming in. But the Spirit of God had been working in Allegra prior to just the day before. And I'm convinced the Spirit of God is looking for people with the right priorities, with the right posture, and he brings them to people he's drawing and wooing to himself. And that's the other second thing we need to rediscover. That is rediscover the power of the gospel. Rediscover the work of of the Spirit, rediscover how the Spirit is at work. He's not asking you to force things. He's not asking you to be weird. How many of us don't do evangelism or witness because we don't want to be weird, right? He's asking you to follow. He, he's asking you to follow His voice, His direction. He'll lead you. Listen to the first Thessalonians. Paul says this, For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that those he has chosen, he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words. Words are important. It's not the only important thing. But also with power. That's how the gospel spread in the early church with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. Words, power, and authentic life lived. I think the church often has a blind spot to this aspect of witness and testimony, that this is a spirit thing. That's one of the primary Ministries that the Spirit of God wants to have in your life. Did you know that? One of the primary ministries He wants to have in your life is witness and testimony and direction. And, and, and we have this blind spot where we're not asking for His direction and His work. I wanted to share a brief story. I asked Veda permission of the story. She 
just presented to the elders this beautiful ministry that God has given her called Kingdom Kids, right? I don't really like the name of the ministry. It doesn't resonate with me that much. <laughs> but anyways, it's still a good ministry that's there. So Kingdom Kids, and, and she has this beautiful ministry. I think she has 11 kids or, or 12 kids that she's directing. And she told the story uh, this week. It was the second time I heard it. And they often go into nursing homes and rehabilitation centers, and they offer to pray for those who are in rehabilitation centers. Isn't that beautiful? Just that intent, that desire. Well, Veda believes that the spirit goes before them. Is that a fair assumption, Veda? Yes. And so she explained to the kids, and they are mostly grade school, that sometimes the Spirit will give prompts and hints. Like, like sometimes there'll be a, a physical manifestation or a thought or a prayer or a scripture. You could call those words of knowledge. That's what the New Testament calls it. So she explained it to the kids. They prayed. And then they were walking from door to door and they were about to knock on the door and there was little Ellie Faircloth. I also asked the Faircloth if I could share. And Ellie said, my legs are hurting. And, um, and first Veda asked, are you tired? Are you, you know, is there, you know, they've been doing this? She said, no. And she said, well, maybe that could be a prompting of a person that we're supposed to pray for. So they knocked on the door. They entered in. It was a person in a wheelchair. His legs were the issue. And he asked for prayer for his legs. And she said, Ellie just like stared at me. If you know Ellie, you can imagine her little face like, wow, this, this like works. What? And I heard that story and I thought, Ellie was how old at the time? Six. Ellie was six. Boy, if we, <laughs> if Ellie is six and, and she's actively listening for the prompting of the Spirit and being used by the Spirit, I think we can, right? Is it, right? It doesn't have to be that, there are the fair claws. It doesn't have to be that way. You know what? It's almost as if we could learn some things about the kingdom from children. <laughs> Friends, we need to rediscover the power, the wisdom, the counsel the direction of the Spirit. Where is the source, the, the energy source from which you are living? Where is the, the reliance and the dependence on the Holy Spirit, especially in witness and evangelism? One of the things that I'm trying to do is daily pray for my non-Christian friends that helps me with priority, that helps me with my posture as I live that day, that helps me with saying, Holy Spirit, I want to be led by you today. And if there's someone that does not know you, lead me to that person. I want to be that guy 
I want to be the one that you use to share this life-changing message with. And then finally this. I think we need to rediscover priority and posture, rediscover the power of the Holy Spirit. And we need to rediscover the truth and the goodness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I, I put it like this because of verse 35. Look at verse 35 with me again. I love this verse. It says, Then Philip began with that very passage of Scripture. I love that he didn't pull out a, a formula of the gospel articulation. Not that that's bad. I think we should have an articulation of the gospel in our back pocket. Um, but but he, he really uses the, the very scripture and he right meets the Ethiopian right where he's reading, right where it's going on in his mind. And he explains this beautiful arc of the gospel. Friends, I believe wholeheartedly that there is this beautiful intellectual integrity of the gospel that we've allowed our culture to create doubt in this intellectual integrity. We've, we've allowed our culture and our universities to say that we are naive and close-minded and don't understand. When I think the opposite is true, there is this, there's this beautiful articulation of how the world works and what the world is about that can only be found in the message of, the, of Christ. First Peter, but in your hearts revere Christ as Lord, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience. Friends, sometimes those who are most convicted of the intellectual integrity of the gospel are the meanest people on the internet and in the news and in politics. We need to not only have the good answers, but talk about the goodness of Christ and live the goodness of Christ. Look at going on in verse 35, Philip says this, from that very passage of scripture, and told him of the good news about Jesus Christ. I said, we need to be living the fullness of the gospel and the goodness of the gospel. That, that needs to be not just the intellectual integrity, but the, the transformation of the gospel in our lives. So we, we did this mini Lectio Divina that Beth led us in on Psalm 23. And... Uh, um, that's been a psalm. I've been reading a, a book called uh, A Life Without Lack. And the whole premise by Dallas Willard, I mentioned a couple times, is that you don't lack anything in Christ. And I was compelled by that title because when I read that, I go, man, I feel like I lack a lot. 
right? I'll just tell you my experience as we were doing Lexio Divina. I don't know if this was from the Lord or my own brokenness or what, but I put a when on the front of that verse. When the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. I shall not want. Because sometimes I feel lack because I'm not allowing Jesus to be my shepherd. And when I invite him to be my shepherd, regardless of the circumstances, regardless of the difficulty and the pain and the struggle, I experience the goodness of Jesus Christ in my life in that moment. Regardless of the attack. I think he ends that psalm, right, with, with goodness will follow him. So goes after him. I believe that Philip had a fullness of the gospel. It, it wasn't a spiritual antidepressant. It wasn't afterlife insurance. The gospel was about the goodness of God in this life today. Friends, if we rediscover that, our church will become a, a place of compelling and vibrant witness. I want to invite the uh, worship team forward and we're going to do a closing song. I was wondering if we could do something a little bit different. Um, it's not Communion Sunday, right? But normally when we have Communion Sunday, everybody's praying, should I go up for Communion? And most of you come up. It's a Sunday that we're anointing with oil. And usually we just leave it up to you could the, the prayer folks come forward that are going to anoint with oil? And I'm wondering if we could invite you forward for a blessing. I'm hoping that it feels a little bit like communion, that most of you would come forward, okay? And here's what I'm asking you to pray and think about. Um, and maybe if the prayers would separate so we'd have like six lines so it would go faster, would that be Okay. So here's the invitation. Is there the three values, the three pursuits, the three things that I'm inviting you all to be a part of this church, the vision of the church, is three things that I, I believe are compelling. All three of them I want to see in my own life and in your lives and in this church. Those three things are, let's see if... Any of you are with me or not? One is deep spiritual formation. That we want Christ formed in us. The second is sacred community and sacred friendships. That we want to have friendships and a community that can withstand the pressures of the world. A community that we're practicing the one another's. Friendships where we're not giving up on one another, cutting bait and leaving. 
And the third is this empowered witness, this spirit-filled witness and testimony that is compelling and that is compassionate. It's three, these three things that I'm inviting you to journey with us towards. And I'm wondering if in this time of anointing with oil that this could just be a time of a blessing. That if you would choose, if you had to choose just one, we're gonna go after all three, but if there's just one, if the Spirit of God was just stirring in your particular heart, which would be that one? You'd say, yeah, God, I, this is, I'm longing to grow in spiritual formation or sacred community or empowered witness, whatever that is. You just come forward and tell the, the person praying that, that one thing and they just want to pray a one-sentence prayer and anoint you with oil and then you can return to your seat. I don't think it would take too long, especially if we have that. Can we do that? Yeah. Let's pray.